This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Quite a bit has taken place since we were last on the air. The Earth's tilt as it uh, orbits the sun has now rendered itself perpendicular to the orbit, and it's on its way toward the maximum inclination in the direction of the sun, meaning it's the vernal equinox. Spring has begun. Now, due to recording constraints, we are before the microphone here, a little bit before the actual development of the equinox. And as I speak, we are a little bit before the time which former President Donald J. Trump has predicted that he will, in fact, be arrested. So there you have it. As we're recording, we don't know whether any uh, law enforcement officials showed up at Mar-a-Lago to take the... Well, actually, this is all silly. Donald Trump hasn't even been indicted yet. As far as I understand it, you have to be indicted and then charged, and after which they go out to arrest you. It's worthy of note that Mr. Merlin and I have a bit of a side bet going on this particular issue. He is uh, rather uncharacteristically more optimistic than I in this judicial matter and feels that there will be an indictment and legal actions taken against the former president before the end of the month. I got a hundred bucks that says it's not going to happen. And yes, by way of clarification, I am very cynical about our judicial system, and so is Mr. McMillan. But in this case, he thinks that the right thing will be done as regards the 45th president. We'll see, eh? Just before sitting down to uh, do some recording here, I was listening to... um, our, our good friends at, I, I guess, I wouldn't exactly say our sister station, but uh, at Capital Public Radio, a fine institution, the Sacramento area's NPR affiliate. They were recounting the fact that it was 20 years ago this week that the United States invaded Iraq. I'm proud to note that uh, we here were on the air at that time and were firmly predicting for, for many months before that, that there was going to be a war, even though the administration was being rather coy about it. In fact, you may recall, if you were listening back then, that we were continually playing Fridonia's Going to War from the Marx Brothers classic Duck Soup. Because anybody who was paying attention knew damn well we were going to go to war in Iraq, even though Iraq had nothing to do with the 9-11 attacks. And I look back and say it was, it was great that we pointed fingers and, and, and alleged that uh, the New York Times and the administration were lying when they talked about weapons of mass destruction, etc. History renders us fully vindicated in our cynicism on that issue. And I suppose we should say a few more things about that, but I don't think we're going to do that today. Instead, I'm going to bring up at this point the fact that uh, I did sneak down across the border in the last week to visit sunny Mexico. <laughs> And no, I didn't literally have to sneak across the border. Once down there in in, in Mexico, which is a wonderful place to be a tourist, there's no two ways about that. On more than one occasion, uh, the music they were piping in to please the tourist who's enjoying himself included Sailing by Christopher Cross. And I had to laugh thinking of the comments I heard on Radio Parallax, or rather reheard them after I said them. It's a great tune. Christopher Cross pointed out that he was depressed at one point, I guess back in the 1980s, and friends of his took it upon themselves to cheer him up. They did so by taking him out sailing. Musing on the success of his song later, he pointed out, well, it was a good thing they didn't take me bowling. 
Yes, we're pretty sure bowling would not have had quite the same cachet as a popular tune. Now, a lot of people are worried about going south of the border. There is a bit of violence down there. There was an unfortunate incident um, just across the border in Texas recently where some people were, I guess, misidentified and got caught in a crossfire. And I did visit one of these states, which the U.S. government was specifically warning tourists to, well, not visit. But I went down anyway and made an interesting discovery, which is that the Mexican drug lords apparently have decided that a good way to launder their money is to build hotels and invest in things like, I I presume, like Home Depots and such. This launders their drug proceeds and earns them an entirely separate uh, income. So I think the drug lords, and I've heard that they actually have cut a deal with the Mexican government, um, they've decided that they're just not going to have violence in the streets in the towns that are collecting tourists. To ensure that tourists will be safe, the Mexican government will prosper, and so will they. You know, if you're of a certain age, you, you think of Mexico and, and jet setters in, in keeping with, you know, visiting Acapulco. That was the place to go, I think, back in the 1960s. Movie stars were always jetting down there. And sometime in the early 80s, there was a drug war that broke out in the streets of the city, catching numerous tourists in the crossfire. And I've never heard of anybody going to Acapulco in the last 30 or so years. I think that they've learned their lesson, I hope, and are going to make sure that uh, that doesn't repeat. And it's a curious thing, actually, to imagine that drug kingpins have turned themselves into real estate developers. But, you know... Seems to be true. And of course, when I say that, I want to point out that I mean no insult to Mexico's drug dealers when I say that. We definitely hope they will not take offense at being referred to as real estate developers. Some might point out that just because our last president was himself a real estate developer doesn't mean that they're all like that. Yeah, in my own experience, I would say that it probably couldn't possibly be more than, say, 90% of them. And you may be interested to know that the several U.S. lawmakers sent a letter last week to ask the U.S. State Department to issue a travel advisory warning Americans against buying medicines in Mexican tourist destinations. A new study by the L.A. Times found that Mexican pharmacies catering to unsuspecting tourists were selling potentially deadly pills laced with, you guessed it, fentanyl, a powerful synthetic opioid. They were passing that off as legitimate oxycodone and also passing off methamphetamine tablets as Adderall. On a happier note regarding Mexican pharmacies, I would point out that it is still possible south of the border to walk into a pharmacy and walk out with a mercury thermometer. I bought a couple of them. I've, I've got a few of them, but I just bought a couple more as insurance and maybe as party favors. You can get them for about 90 cents down there. And the nice thing about a mercury thermometer is you can put it away in your medicine chest, take it out 10 years later, and it'll still work just fine. Unlike all those battery-operated thermometers you have, which are probably run down and no longer working. Certainly been the case with me. Yeah, a few weeks ago, I was uh, wondering if I had a fever, so I went to the medicine chest. I went to several different medicine chests and found the conventional electronic thermometers, all of which had dead batteries. And yeah, yeah, you can go to CVS or wherever, right? Aid, you can replace the batteries. It's not, you know, it's not impossible to do. But it was nice that instead I found my Mexican thermometer, stuck it in my mouth, and got a temperature reading right away. And just a word on that. Yes, mercury can be deadly. It's generally, in its natural state, pretty safe. Ask anyone who uses it to, you know, do gold mining. And who hasn't played with mercury as a kid? Now, the, the problem is if you vaporize it, 
I remember a case so well from many years ago of a couple of children that had gotten some mercury and put it on a frying pan on the uh, stove and produced deadly mercury toxic fumes, which in fact proved fatal in two cases. So no, it's not a free ride. On the other hand, my study of the history of medicine tells me that uh, mercury was known in previous eras as the cathartic of kings. It was non-toxic enough that you could swallow it and the weight moving through your your bowels would would encourage things to pass along. And of course, the metal always had the potential of then being recycled. Although we do have to feel a bit of sympathy for whoever got the job of being the king's mercury recycler. Speaking of toxic substances, I saw a documentary recently on uranium, which was pretty interesting. It had a few factual errors. I noticed they sloughed over the fact that that initial atomic test, the Trinity site down in New Mexico, was not for a uranium bomb. It was for a plutonium bomb. The difference between little boy and fat man. Little boy was the uranium bomb. They knew it was going to work. They didn't even feel they needed to test it. The first time it got tested was when they dropped it on Hiroshima. Not that I suppose anybody really needs to know that, but it, it, is, it is interesting that it somehow gets ignored. The physicist hosting the show was also talking about how uranium would remain dangerous for 4.5 billion years. Well, its half-life was 4.5 billion years. But the truth of the matter is, is that uranium-238 is not all that hot. It's the other stuff that has a much shorter half-life you have to worry about. Many years back on this program, we spoke with an author, Tom Bleese, who had written a book about how it was that breeder reactors could then use nuclear waste as nuclear fuel. And it's a fact... You can, but the fact is the problems that come from that sort of reaction are, are, are much more problematic. They are really, really radioactively hot and therefore very dangerous. But you know what else is dangerous? The fact that the CO2 levels keep rising year after year after year. And yes, the, the verdict is in. Last year was the highest CO2 emission ever. The uranium program talked about how it was that between now and the year 2050, they expect more CO2 to get emitted than had been produced up till now by mankind. And if that should happen, well, stick a fork in us, because we're done. As mentioned here in the show a few weeks back, Isaac Asimov, looking forward to the future from 1964, estimated that by the time we got to about the year 2014, he figured about half the energy on Earth would be produced from nuclear plants. And boy, we have missed the mark on that. And there's two fingers we could point on that. The first would be at environmental activists who just thought nuclear power was just bad no matter what. It had to go no matter what. And, of course, uh, the other finger I would point would be at the oil industry, which I think were encouraging these people, funding these people, perhaps surreptitiously so that people wouldn't realize they were being funded by big oil which to me has sad parallels to the people in the Bay Area and in California right now that want to go pedal to the metal and build, build, build housing everywhere. They are very well-meaning in their intentions, but I think that the real story behind that is they are being funded by the real estate industry and big tech. And we'll have more to say about those entities as we go along. Let's do a little bit of follow-up, though, at this point, um, starting with the fact that, and this one, this one really just won't be upside the head, we mentioned the Iraq War. Well, you may or may not be aware, I certainly was not aware of the fact, dear listener, that the enabling legislation that was passed 
Basically, both houses of Congress uh, gave a rubber stamp to the idea that we needed to go in there and do what we needed to do in Iraq to get the job done. And apparently, the, the military's had a carte blanche for the past 20 years to do that. So it was that last week, the U.S. Senate took a first step toward repealing two measures that give open-ended approval for military actions in Iraq, pushing to end that authority. <laughs> yeah, maybe, as the U.S. marks its 20, the 20th anniversary of the war. Senators voted 68 to 27 to move forward on legislation that would repeal the 2002 measure that greenlighted the March 2003 invasion. Apparently, 19 Republicans joined Democrats in supporting the measure. Well, bravo to them. But just a minute, the Senate passed it, but, you know, over in the House, might be a different matter. Apparently, it is unclear whether the Republican-controlled House is going to bring the bill up for a vote, even. 49 House Republicans supported the legislation when the then-majority Democrats held a vote two years ago. But wouldn't you know it, current House Speaker Kevin McCarthy... He opposed it then and presumably opposes it now. I guess McCarthy just wants to keep that door open in case we don't need to invade Iraq again. A lot of people who think we ought to keep this legislation in place uh, pointed out that Donald Trump cited the 2002 Iraq War Resolution as part of its, quote, legal, unquote, justification for a 2020 U.S. drone strike that killed Iranian General Qusayn Soleimani. I do want to give reporters Mary Clay Jelanik and Ellen Nickermover credit for citing at the end of the piece that the Bush administration had drummed up support among members of Congress and Americans for invading Iraq by promoting false intelligence claims about Saddam's weapons of mass destruction. They pointed out that nearly 5,000 U.S. troops were killed in the war, and the Iraqi deaths are estimated to have been in the hundreds of thousands. So it is that the White House and President Biden uh, have made a statement saying they would work with Congress to replace the authorization with a narrow and specific framework more appropriate to protecting Americans from modern terrorist threats. To which Mr. Rimmel would add, instead of the false ones in Iraq. And in a follow-up to a story we mentioned a few weeks back about what's going on over in France, well, the French really take this idea of retiring at 62 pretty damn seriously. And French President Emmanuel Macron has ordered his prime minister to wield a special constitutional power last week that skirts parliament to force through a highly unpopular bill raising the retirement age from 62 to 64 without having to get a vote. Macron's political opposition is demanding that he step down. Marie Le Pen and her far-right national party say they're going to file a no-confidence motion. And communist lawmaker Fabian Rossud said that such a motion is ready from the left. We might see some civil unrest in France over this. By the way, Donald Trump dropped some hints about how if he gets arrested, people should mobilize to make sure that, you know, he he isn't treated badly. So who knows? Maybe we'll have violence in the streets of America. Hold on to that thought. We're going to return to that uh, a little bit later. And some weeks back, we mentioned how there's a couple new promising drugs that appear to be uh, really effective in getting people to drop weight. And it appears that Weight Watchers is getting into that... uh, that those the use of those drugs is part of their program to help people slim down. So yeah, Weight Watchers may be uh, encouraging people to get some exercise, to watch their diet, and while they're at it, get some shots every week of either Ozempic or Wegovi, which are different versions of the same drug known as semiglutide. They're both given in once-a-week injections. And just in case you're one of those people that refuses to eat Reese's peanut butter cups, 
because they contain milk chocolate. You will be no doubt encouraged to find out that the good people at Reese's are coming up with a new version of their cups that are vegan. And no, we have no idea whether this will be incorporated into the diet suggested by the good people at Weight Watchers. Mr. Millen's guess is no. And another health-related news, uh, and we also mentioned this a couple of weeks back, there's, there's some new studies out showing that, well, the evidence on how well masks work is a little bit complicated. An amalgamation of numerous studies was not able to say definitively how effective masks were. But in the wake of this, all of the goofballs that are anti-mask, anti-vax, etc. were claiming that, well, you see these shows, masks don't work. The New York Times has pointed out that real-world studies, say from Japan, which emphasizes wearing masks, well, they had one-sixth the COVID death rate of the U.S., adding that the science is clear that masks work. I remember so well at the beginning of the uh, pandemic when <laughs> reporters found their way to Korea, which was doing a spectacularly good job of keeping COVID from spreading, and they asked the health minister what he thought about masks. <laughs> he, looked, he looked dumbfounded, like, well, yeah, of course you want to use masks. Encountering this disinformation about mask use, and that's really probably the, the best word for it, we have Stephen Harper, who has a piece currently out in Common Dreams, addressing the realities of what this study showed and what common sense tells you one needs to do as regards mask use. We may have him on the show in, in the future to talk about this. Harper was specifically taking aim at Brett Stevens, a columnist for the New York Times, who was happily spreading his misinterpretations of what the data showed. To quote from Stephen Harper at the end of the article, he noted that mask mandates are disappearing and won't return anytime soon, but not because they were ineffective when needed. The catastrophic consequences of Stevens's disinformation will arrive when the next airborne virus, or COVID variant, strikes at which point victims will overwhelm hospitals, as they did before. Said Stephen Harper, the Times is complicit in this after failing to issue a correction to Stevens's column. It then regressed to both-sidism, presenting both sides of an issue if they stand on equal fact-based footing when they don't. He said that's not journalism, it's an insidious form of disinformation. And when it involves public health, it can be deadly. When you hear that music, you know what it means. We're going to do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for not wearing masks, at least in public, in New York. Because, wouldn't you know it, New York City police are now asking people to remove their face masks before entering stores. Many city residents still wear masks indoors and when they're walking about, but amid a surge of robberies and shoplifting by masked criminals, NYPD Chief Jeffrey Madre said shoppers should at least briefly bare their faces for security cameras as a sign of safety to store workers. You remember the beginning of the pandemic when I walked into my local bank wearing a mask and said I never thought I'd come in here with one of these things on. The teller was not amused. Well, on the other hand, a bad week last week for useful idiots 
with the news that Fox News' Sean Hannity aired an interview in which Donald Trump claimed he would have prevented the war in Ukraine by, quote, negotiating, unquote, a peace deal. Fox decided to edit out the part where Trump admitted he would have let Russia take over parts of Ukraine. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for the uh, unclear status of abortion rights in the state of Texas, with the news that five women have sued Texas last week, saying the state's ban denied them abortions despite life-threatening risks. Two of the women had fetuses with no skulls. Two other faced twin pregnancies that required one fetus to be aborted to save the other. The last, lead plaintiff, Amanya Zorowski, said she was denied an abortion because her fetus, which had no chance of surviving, still registered a heartbeat. Zorowski was only allowed to deliver after developing sepsis, which is often fatal. Her baby died, and Zorowski suffered an infection that caused permanent damage to her. She said very few people would agree there's anything pro-life about this. Under current law, in the Lone Star State, a physician can only provide an abortion after determining that a woman faces substantial harm without one. The plaintiffs, four of whom traveled out of state, say the standard is impossibly vague and leaves doctors wary of criminal prosecution for almost any abortion. And a story that surely combines a bit of good and bad and ugly, we have the, the fact that there's a, a, a current battle over what the hell really happened with the Nord Stream pipeline in the Baltic Sea. We all know it was sabotaged and leaked a lot of gas. Seymour Hirsch had an inside source in the U.S. intelligence community that assured him that, yeah, we did it with the help of the Norwegians, which prompted the German officials to come back and say, no, no, we have evidence that the Ukrainians might have done it. I love this particular aspect of the reporting. It was said that U.S. intelligence officials told the New York Times, always a reliable source, when they tell you things like not to wear a mask and Saddam's got weapons of mass destruction. Anyway, the New York Times was told last week that the intelligence communities, that they suspect pro-Ukrainian saboteurs, which I guess is kind of an addendum to saying, yeah, yeah, we looked into it. Wasn't us. Now, Radio Parallax has heard the rumor, and we, can, we confess it's only a rumor that these same U.S. intelligence officials have hired O.J. Simpson to see if he can get to the bottom of this. We have to admit, he would be an inspired choice to reach out and try and find the real saboteurs. And if he never does get to the bottom of it, he at least could come out with a book that said, How I Would Have Done the Sabotage. And, you know, just to return briefly to this whole Texas abortion thing, which I sort of hate to do, but I do feel a need to mention the fact that in a related story, a man down in Texas is suing three of his ex-wife's friends for helping her obtain an abortion. This is marking the first time Such a lawsuit has gone forward since the state passed its abortion ban last summer. Plaintiff Marcus Silva is seeking $1 million in damages and is represented by former Texas Solicitor General Jonathan Mitchell, who, not coincidentally, perhaps helped craft the abortion law. He's also getting help from Republican State Representative Briscoe Kane. Silva alleges that his ex-wife learned she was pregnant last July when she was five or six weeks pregnant. Citing screenshots of texts among his wife's friends, Silva alleges that his ex-wife obtained abortion pills after discussing their safety with friends and weighing other options, including traveling out of state. I guess this Texas law protects women who receive an abortion from being actually prosecuted for wrongful death, but I guess it doesn't uh, save any friends that may want to help the person in trouble. 
And in some dark humor related to the Republican uh, efforts to get uh, the nomination in 2024, and we, we need some humor even if it is dark, we have the fact that allies of former President Trump have filed a complaint with the Florida Commission on Ethics accusing Ron DeSantis, Trump's leading potential 2024 primary rival, of violating campaign finance and ethics rules. And one thing we know, Team Trump is a stickler for ethics. It is curious that the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg is at least putting out signals that, you know, maybe Trump will be indicted. You know, we asked him to be one to come and speak to the grand jury. He didn't want to, but we, we, did, we did extend the offer. You have to step back at times and note that, well, yeah, Stormy Daniels, uh, I guess, was recently testifying about this whole affair. Trump denies that he ever had uh, any sort of relation with, well, a sexual relation with the porn star. And yet he signed checks that reimbursed Michael Cohn for his efforts to hide the whole matter. And Cohn went to jail for it. The, the payments were mislabeled as legal expenses. Now, there's still the possibility of going after Trump for his efforts to uh, obtain illegal votes in the state of Georgia. We'll see what happens there. And, of course, the United States Attorney General Merrick Garland. We understand he's very suspicious that some of Trump's activities were just a little bit fishy. He's just not quite sure what to do about them. Now, if they do try and arrest Trump, and God, you know, we, we certainly hope that eventually they do, we may see something happen here in the U.S., such as passed in Lahore, Pakistan. Police there tried to arrest Imran Khan, the former cricket star and former prime minister. They went to his home in Lahore, but had to retreat after they were blocked by hundreds of his angry supporters. Here's the part I like best in the reporting of the story. Officers fired tear gas, and the backers of Khan fought back with rocks. And finally, a court halted the arrest operation because the resulting traffic jam was disrupting a nearby cricket tournament. Curiously, Khan was ousted as prime minister in April of last year, but has refused to appear in court to face charges that he sold state gifts. He said the show of force was meant to intimidate his followers from voting, but a government spokesperson said the police were simply following court orders when Khan's PTI party unleashed its goons. And speaking of goons, it's worthy of note that the former Vice President Mike Pence issued his strongest public condemnation of Donald Trump last week at the Gridiron Club. Pence called the attacks a disgrace and added that it mocks decency to portray it in any other way. It's also worthy of note that Pence continues to fight a subpoena seeking his testimony about what happened that day. Pence also appeared to take a shot at Tucker Carlson for downplaying the riot, saying, quote, tourists don't injure 140 police officers by sightseeing, end quote. True enough. Apparently, he was asked if he would unreservedly support the Republican nominee, to which he replied, yes, if it's me. So, all right, never let it be said that Mike Pence is utterly devoid of any sense of humor. But we we're utterly devoid of any further time for this first segment, so let's take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We've got plenty more. Don't go away. <laughs> 